Welcome to the Next Level Income Show, where it's our goal to take your income, your investments, and your life to the next level. You can get our free book and more educational resources at nextlevelincome.com. On today's show, we have Chris Benson, who's Chief Investment Officer with Reliant Investments. Reliant Investments is a vertically integrated commercial self-storage operator located in Roswell, Georgia. Mr. Benson oversees the equity raising arm of the business. He sits on the investment committee and manages investor relations. In the past 24 months, the Reliant team has been responsible for over 200 million in self-storage acquisitions across the southeastern United States. Chris was a sales uh, professional. He brings a wealth of knowledge from his ownership experience in the commercial multifamily arena. And prior to joining Reliant, he worked for Intuitive Surgical, also another medical device company, which was the developer of the Da Vinci Surgical Robot. Mr. Benson graduated from the State University of Binghamton, and he currently lives with his wife and children in Roswell, Georgia. So Chris, welcome to the show. Good morning, guys. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So Chris, I know your partner, Lou, who lives not far from me here, which is uh, how we met. He connected us. Uh, but for the audience who's listening today, uh, please share your story about how you went from being in New York in the medical device field to being down south here with us and uh, entering the self-storage investment industry. Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, so, from my my background's pretty varied. Um, to your point, Chris, I I came from the medical device industry, um, previous to going to real estate full time. So, uh, my background was sales, and um, essentially, when I turned, I, I don't know the exact date, but somewhere in the thirty range, twenty eight to thirty, uh, I distinctly remember waking up and saying to myself that um, I can't do this for the next thirty years. So, I, I was very successful and. Uh, I guess in the metrics that you traditionally uh, measure. Um, I had a great job, worked for great companies, um, had a really nice career, but um, the biggest issue was time. I, I just didn't control my own time. And I think the bigger thing as I got older and realized is was um, I never was going to. I was on a path that just kind of started over every January 1st. You know, I mean, um, quotas just start over and away we go again. So um, what my perspective was, was I got to find something to replace that income and preferably in a passive manner. And so um, that's what led me to real estate investing initially. And I started uh, on a path similar to probably how most everybody has. So we initially bought uh, some um, duplexes in the town that we lived in, in upstate New York. Um, and we bought a number of those units and very quickly realized that that was not scalable. It was awful, actually. I, it was my least favorite part of the real estate endeavors that I've been a part of. Um, and mostly it was because um, not necessarily the day-to-day -day management aspect. We, we had outsourced that pretty well, but it was really the, um, the people part of it. I, you know, we were managing B, B-minus type properties and it was almost soul-sucking. Um, it just wasn't what I wanted to do with my extra time, which was very limited already. So um, we got into commercial multifamily. Actually, my first multifamily family project was a 64 unit development. Uh, we ended up selling all of the duplexes we had and um, I had a family friend who was um, a construction developer guy um, in the town I grew up in and I randomly called him one day and talked to him in probably 15 years and said, hey, I have a little bit of money. Um, I want to get into apartments. What do you got? And uh, he had just so happened to talk to a municipality about a piece of land that um, they wanted to do something on as far as housing. 
And that led to a discussion of building the 64 unit complex. So fortunately I have a wife who's very risk tolerant um, because essentially we just put our life savings and <laughs> into this project and wow. had a great partner who, uh, you know, kept us safe um, for the most part. I mean, we had little hiccups here and there and still do, but um, the uh, that, that was the beginning of commercial real estate for me. And so, you know, Chris, for me, there was a, a quote that I heard or read, and I wish I could give credit to who said it, but it was big deals and small deals are the same amount of work. You just make less money in small deals. And so that, that was really true with commercial real estate is once I understood kind of the scale that you could operate on, um, the light bulbs went off. So um, from there, um, I started investing passively into some um, syndications around the country. Um, primarily in um, primary markets, Dallas, Atlanta, um, Phoenix. And um, essentially what, what we did was my little group grew organically. Um, so people knew what I was doing and said, hey, I'd be interested um, in investing in the next project that you're a part of. And um, uh, pretty soon that, that group was sizable um, where we were able to bring pretty large equity checks. And in return for that, um, I was getting earning ownership on the back end of uh, projects that I was investing in personally. So um, that's how I got started kind of investing on the commercial side of things. And then I know this is a long drawn out story, um, but it's basically my life. So I feel like I at least get a few minutes to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, but the, uh, how we got to self storage was um, as an asset class of multifamilies continued to cap rates have continued to compress. I wanted to see what other types of asset classes still had value. And in doing some homework, self-storage was one of those. And uh, I ended up talking with a, a number of self-storage operators, um, Reliant being one of them, where I am now. And uh, I started out as an investor in Reliant first and then um, kind of uh, fell in love with the platform, but more importantly, the, the team who was here. And as a function of that, um, about two years ago, um, Todd, my partner, uh, essentially said I needed help in, or he needed help in raising some equity and he described what he was doing at that point. And, um, I said, well, we can do better than that. And, uh, we formed partnership. I joined the company as an employee. It'll be two years in April. Um, and, uh, it's been pretty fun. We've relocated our family to, uh, to Georgia this summer. We moved uh, down to Roswell where all our offices, um, we're just outside of Atlanta and, uh, yeah, it's been quite an adventure. I love it. Thanks for, thanks for sharing all that, Chris. And I, you know, one of the things I think that I enjoyed when we first met was a lot of the similarities that we have in our stories. So what, what year was it that you did that development? I'm just curious, kind of going back through the cycle here. Um, I think we started it, we did it in phases in 16 unit phases. So yeah. I want to say 2013 yeah. is when we started it. Um, and then built out a 16 unit phase at a time that the first one we did 16, the next one we did 32, and the last one we did 16 um, gotcha. with the idea of the market we were building in was a tertiary market by all means. And so the hypothesis was essentially we thought we could be <clears throat> essentially the only class A apartment offering in the market. And so our rates uh, comparatively uh, compared to the comps were way above what a two bedroom, two bath would be in the market. And so we wanted to see if there was a a market for these types of assets. And, you know, um, it was my partner's hypothesis more than mine, but I went along for the ride and turned out pretty well. Terrific. Awesome. 
you mentioned cap rate compression as being um, one of the reasons that you first started shifting your focus to self-storage. So for someone listening, though, who might not know much about investing in self-storage, could you dive a little deeper into why you invest in self-storage and now have, you know, you're making made a whole career shift to that area? Yeah, I mean, if, if you're aware of what's happening in multifamily, there's just so much capital chasing deals. Um, that and, and this has been the case for probably the last three years that you know cap rates continue to compress so it, it's harder to find value um storage will get there um and, and we've certainly seen a cap rate compression i don't know if it's necessarily um as much as we've seen in multifamily but um you know when i looked at storage there, there were three things caleb um, i'm a data guy i like to um see kind of the historical data and understand uh, where that's going to point us for the future um, so for me, you know, I looked at a couple things. One was returns, right? I mean, everybody wants to talk about historical returns and, um, the database I like to look at is the national association of REIT data. It's the NAREIT. You guys can put this in the show notes. It's, it's free and That's terrific. everybody has access to it, but they have 25 years of all the publicly traded REITs. Um, and you can look at every subsector of real estate. I mean, to the like timber agriculture REITs, if there is a publicly traded REIT, they're tracking it. Um, storage in the last 25 years did just under 17% a year. And even comparatively to apartments, which I think was around 13%, you know, it outperformed. Um, so that was kind of an eye opener for me. Um, and storage has always been considered, well, maybe until now, the secret's kind of out, but it's kind of this niche thing where, you know, apartments, office, retail are kind of the, the darling set, the darlings of commercial real estate and storage has always been, you know, this redheaded stepchild that all of a sudden people said, Oh, you know, that does really well. Let's, let's get involved. And the other thing that I looked at is, so, you know, performance was really good. And then I wanted to understand what happened in the last correction. So if you look at data from 2007, eight and nine stores lost less than 4% of its value at the read level. Um, and if you look at what happened to apartments, it was closer to seven or eight. Um, and then retail and office just got, they, they got hurt as you'd expect. Yeah. Yeah. And S and P 500 during that same time period was down 22 plus percent. Right. So, um, not only did it perform well historically, but had some downside protection. So, you know, two things check the boxes that seems like a pretty good asset class to get involved in. And then lastly, and this is probably the reason, you know, Caleb, I've, I've hitched my wagon to storage, um, for lack of a better term is really the, the consolidation opportunity that exists in the space. Right. So, you know, there's five publicly traded REITs in self-storage. Um, the names that if your listeners are listening in a car, uh, if you look off any highway interchange, you're probably going to see, you know, extra space, public storage, CubeSmart. Um, and there's two more. And, and U-Haul is one of the six publicly traded companies, not a REIT. But those guys own about 25 to 30% of the market, depending on what data you look at, right? So, the other 70%, the ownership is very fragmented. So I see that as a consolidation opportunity, right? Where in multifamily, those properties have been consolidated for the most part. I mean, there's still, you know, as you guys know, there's still opportunities out there, but um, it's much more challenging to find. Here, there are still, in self-storage, there are still a lot of mom and pop operators. You know, think people who own one or two facilities. Um, that offer tremendous opportunities for growth and value add. So um, that, that was really the, the three reasons that brought me to storage initially. And, um, you know, at Reliant, we're doing a little bit of everything. We're not doing just value add. We're doing stabilized assets and development. So 
um, you know, my partners and and the team here have a, a, a vast knowledge of storage. And so they're able to apply that across the board. Terrific. Uh, so Chris, you know, you talked about uh, some of the data that was in there. How do you, what are the, what are the similarities to multifamily or differences um, that you see? Like we, we, we look at, you know, the baby boomer trends, the millennial trends, you know, people are moving, you know, if they're downsizing, I imagine they're putting their stuff into self-storage, for instance. If they're, you know, millennial that's moving uh, from city to city, they're more transient than, than prior generations and mobile with their, with their careers. How, how does that affect what you guys do? Yeah, I mean, we're looking at this similar demographic trends that, that multifamily asset classes to, right? Job growth, population of a market, yep. you know, um, you know, traffic count, the, the amount of supply in a one, three, five mile radius. I mean, what's interesting about storage is um, the demand is challenging to understand. So, you know, I think from a perspective of how, how do we decide who's going to move into a storage facility, that's one of the biggest challenges that we see at an underwriting level. You know, I think as an asset class itself, we're a business of change. So anytime there's transition, you know, that's usually good news for storage. You know, you just mentioned Chris moving, right? I mean, if people are moving, typically yeah. their stuff's coming in and out of storage. Um, you know, what's been interesting is if you look at the percentage of the American population who's used storage over the last 10 years, it's a hockey stick graph. Yeah. What we don't know is why, right? It, it, it's sort of been, if you build it, they will come mentality, right? Where what what's happening to influence how, um, storage demand is getting consumed or how storage is getting consumed, uh, at least we don't know. And, and I would argue that um, most, uh, most of the operators in the industry aren't 100% sure of, hey, how do we ascertain demand? There's been some interesting studies where people have spent a lot of money trying to understand statistically significant metrics mm -hmm. that matter to demand, like things very nuanced, like divorce rates in a five-mile radius, right? You know, you know, move in rates, new jobs, and, and none of them are statistically significant. So each market's very nuanced. And, and the one thing I'd say about storage, Chris, different than apartments is it's a sharpshooters game. So, you know, our tenants are usually 70 plus percent of them come within a five mile radius. And so all that matters is that yep. MSA, right? That five mile MSA. Yep. The, the data at the market level is somewhat irrelevant. Um, it's about understanding that intimate group and what's happening in that particular radius of uh, from your store. And um, I think that gives you the opportunity to go find, you know, maybe markets that have been traditionally oversupplied, um, an opportunity to go out and find um, something or a, a good opportunity in that space. Yeah. And I've noticed on your website, I mean, if anybody goes and checks it out, you guys, you know, you follow, uh, you know, similar demographic trends to where um, what we look at, you know, Southeast, you guys are heavily concentrated there. What geographic areas are you guys focusing on in the future? So we're, we're vertically integrated, right? So we're the management company as well as the acquisitions team. So we have 50, as of today, 57 properties in the portfolio. And so we're always trying to connect the dots on that portfolio, right? If you think about how we exit um, or how we look to exit, um, it makes sense or there's a better valuation if we're able to exit at a portfolio level. Um, so we're trying to connect the dots with the portfolio we currently have. And not to say that we won't look in states that we've never been in. Um, we just uh, bought our first three properties in Tennessee this summer. We probably wouldn't have done that if we bought one, 
um, but the ability to have three and create some scale. Um, we have a portfolio in Alabama, so we're trying to connect it with the Alabama portfolio. I think that's how we look at it. We're opportunistic as far as markets are concerned. Um, we like the Southeast, um, you know, for the reasons most people do, you know, net population migration. You got a lot of people from moving from the Northeast to the Southeast. So you got good population growth. Um, like uh, you. For, and Yeah, like me, <laughs> indeed. Um, and then, you know, obviously there's some tax advantages. Florida doesn't have state income tax. Um, Tennessee doesn't have state income tax. So, you know, there's definitely some reasons why people are moving here as well as the weather. So yeah. um, that we, we kind of look at anything, but essentially our first blush at it from an underwriting standpoint is going to be, does it match with the rest of the portfolio? Is there a reason we'd like to be there? Terrific. Chris, before you had mentioned uh, briefly a couple different strategies like value add and stabilized assets, could you explore a little bit about the different strategies you all take with the assets you acquire and how you apply them? You know, I, it's not too dissimilar, Caleb, than any other asset class, right? So, you know, a core plus or a stabilized asset, essentially we're buying it to, to clip coupons, right? We're buying it for cash flow. There may be some things that we can add to improve, um, but you know, for the most part, we're buying it for the cash flow. It's it's a low execution risk strategy. Um, you know, a value add deal. The, the business plan on our value add properties are different for each one. And I think uh, you know, Todd um, Todd Allen, who's one of the co-founders of Reliant, his his advantage is he's got a vision when he walks on the property of what he wants it to be. And so, you know, a value add for us could be you know we go into a market and. Um, the, the current owner has an expansion opportunity and we feel like the market's undersupplied. So we're going to put a shovel on the ground and build out some buildings. Um, and we do that uh, quite often. We have an internal project management team. We're not the GCs, but we have an internal construction project management team that's managing those process for us. Um, the value add also could be, um, you know, like a CFO deal where we're buying an asset at certificate of occupancy and, and the value add or the risk is getting it leased up you know, take it from zero to stabilized um, and implementing our management strategies to do that. So really value add is a pretty broad definition for us. It depends on the particular property and where we think the opportunity is. Um, you know, development deal, Caleb, is what you'd expect development to be. Um, you know, we buy a piece of dirt, get it entitled and permitted, and, and then we're building out a building and, you know, most risky on the, on the risk spectrum. You know, I typically know cash flow for two years and um, you know, investors on the development side are really hoping for the back end pop. And at this point in the cycle, we're really hesitant um, for ground up, but unless it's a, a, a real home run. Chris, so what are you seeing in terms of, you're talking about, you know, when you're, when you're leasing up or you have stabilized, uh, what are you seeing in the market in terms of self-storage, how technology is playing in and like what different amenities? Um, obviously, you know, in, in apartments, you know, you have, you have different amenities at C, B and A levels. Uh, residents are expecting different things. Are you seeing sure. the same thing in self-storage? No, we rent boxes. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to put amenities in a garage. I mean, look, so th there's definitely an A, B, and C class level. Um, okay. It's not quite the same categorization and as cleanly as defined as apartments are, you know, um, but, you know, what most tenants want is safe, clean, reliable, right? So, okay to walk into a retail location that looks like a retail center, right? Yep. Uh, 
you know, storage has come a long way. I, the first storage unit I ever rented was a guy's house and he had a whole bunch of units behind his house. So, you know, literally you walked into his house and he's got a white t-shirt with spaghetti stains on it coming out and saying, what do you need? Um, you know, it's come that that's a generation ago of storage. And now, you know, we're developing on the corner of Maine and Maine with three story stone and glass buildings. So when you walk into the retail office, you know, it feels like a Starbucks, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's that type of feel. So, you know, I think most, most people are want to ensure that their stuff is safe, um, that it's clean um, and that they have the customer service that they need. Um, but there's not really a specific amenities. Um, you know, you mentioned the technology. There are some operators that are doing kiosks where there's no humans on the site, right? So that you yeah. can go in, it's like a vending machine. You can rent the unit, you can get your locks um, all electronically. Um, and, you know, we've evaluated that and I think there's probably opportunities in some markets for it. Um, but for us, a big part of our, um, revenue stream comes from ancillary income, typically 10 to 15% of, uh, pro forma, you know, so things like U-Haul truck rentals and point of sale systems where we're selling box and locks and tape and those kinds of things, tenant insurance, those all require a human to interact with you. Um, because most we call them effort sales, right? Like it, you have to ask like, Hey, you're renting a truck. Do you need boxes? You know, those, those kinds of things where, um, if, if you do a kiosk, you're walking away from a, a, a portion of them. I, you know, we don't have any, so I can't speak to our own data, but, um, it's certainly something that, um, right now doesn't make sense based on the portfolio we have. Yeah, no, that makes sense. That makes good sense. Um, so Chris, what are your thoughts? You know, we're, we're ticked over to a new decade here. Um, you know, you mentioned some consolidation. Uh, what other thoughts do you have on, you know, what this decade is going to hold and what are you guys doing at Reliant to scale in terms of that and take advantage of some of these trends? Um, so, well, I think the biggest thing in storage right now is um, the, the new supply that's hit the market, right? So in the short term, it's riding out the development cycle that's happened. I mean, in any asset class, if you perform, people are going to show up, right? right. So um, after 2007, 2012, uh, people realized, wow, storage did very, very well. And you see, you know, if you look at the amount of development spending in storage, talk about a hockey stick from 2014 to 2020, it's crazy. So the most new net rentable square footage in the history of the asset class has been delivered in 2018 and 2019 beat 2018. So, wow. you know, with that comes a lot of new supply to market and uh, the short term impact of that is it's going to impact some of your markets, right? Sure. It's based supply and demand. So I think the short term is we're going to have to ride that out and there'll be some markets that are um, impacted. Primarily that development was across the top 50 MSAs, right? So think New York, Dallas, LA, you know, Denver, Atlanta. Um, we primarily operate in secondary and tertiary markets. So that's where we've been able to find value and be competitive. So it hasn't affected us as much, but there's certainly been some markets that it's affected us for sure. Um, so I think in the short term, you know, Chris, you got to let that settle um, and we'll kind of come back to an equilibrium. I, I don't foresee, and this is my own hypothesis, so take it for what you, what it, you will. I, I don't foresee us having um, a major shift in the demand curve for storage. Um, if you look at some of the population trends, here's what's most interesting to me on the long-term growth. So, you know, if you look at the national REIT data, which is all public, you can go out and see their investor presentations. 
um, they track their portfolio scale. And some of these facilities or companies have thousands of properties across the United States. They look at the percentage of population um, that a specific generation makes up of the total U.S. population. So let's say, and I don't have the numbers in front of me, but let's say baby boomers make up 30% of the U.S. population, right? And then they compare that to what percentage of their tenant base that generation makes up, right? Mm -hmm. And what they're trying to see is, is it relatively close? Like, for example, the boomers are relatively close, right? They make up 30% of the U.S. population and they make up 25% of their tenant base, right? So it's a pretty good indicator of like, okay, generation by generation, how's this going to work? The most recent generation, which I think is Generation Z, I'm not 100% on that either, but the youngest generation, storage users, the most time that they spend or the, the best um, the best consumers of storage are between 30 and 65. 30 Gen and Z, 65, yeah. area, Makes sense. right? Yep. They make up 35-ish, don't quote me on the exact numbers, but 35-ish of the uh, US percent of the US population, but they make up less than 5% of the storage consumer mm-hmm. base. And so the hypothesis behind that is as they come of age, it makes the pie bigger. So you're going to have more people consuming storage, which obviously is a win for us. We hope that's the case. And as boomers start to die off and that percentage gets lower, they will outpace um, the boomer die off. So, you know, it's interesting demographic trends that, you know, only time is going to tell on that. But if you're asking me what's kind of my long-term view of it um, at the decade level, that that's how I view it. Yeah, that's terrific. So I guess like how, how sticky is self-storage? So you said, you know, the pie is going to grow. So if I'm, if I'm 60 years old and I move my stuff into a unit, am I likely to move? How likely am I to stick, stay in there or move out? Or, you know, that's one of the things I I enjoy about self-storage is, you know, you raise prices five or 10 bucks a month. I'm probably not going to move my stuff to another self-storage unit. Yeah. I mean, it, it depends on the market, right? Um, and, the type of tenant that you are. Residential tenants have less tenure than commercial. You know, typically our commercial tenants um, are staying 24 months or more. Um, You know, most, I think our, in our particular portfolio, we just looked at this a quarter ago. I want to say it was just under 40% of our tenants stay less than 12 months. Um, And then it's another 40% that are staying more than 12 months. And then there's a 20% period of, of the tenant base that is, um, uh, essentially 12 months or more, or I'm sorry, I think it was 24 months or more. So it depends where you are, um, and what markets you're in. If you're in a snowbird market, right. Where you have people coming in and out every winter season, typically those people are stickier, right. Where I'm going to put all my summer furniture in storage and then I'm going to leave for the, the summer and go home and then come back in the winter time. Um, those tenants hang around longer. If you're in a real transition, a lot of move-ins, a lot of move-outs, um, we have a property at a, a mixed-use development or, or planned-use development in Florida where they're, they're just buying and selling a ton of homes. And so um, we're seeing a lot of churn. We see a lot of volume, people moving in. We also see a lot of people moving out just as homes are finished and they don't have that need for storage. So it's really a market-by-market um, specific d- dynamic. Yeah. Cool. Thanks for sharing that. So Chris, one question we always ask on the show is if you could go back in time and talk to your 25 year old self, um, with everything you know now, but just offer yourself one piece of advice back then, what would it be? 
specific to storage or are we talking about life? Life. You can, or you can, can you can pick. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, a couple things, I guess. And, and it's going to sound hokey because um, I've listened to a lot of podcasts and people probably have similar answers. I think the first one is um, from a real estate investing standpoint, you have to jump in, right? So at 25, I was still um, chasing money, I think is probably the best way to describe it, where I was looking for paychecks. And then when I started to make you know, what almost everyone would consider really great money. I was like, oh, that's, that's not what I want. Um, you know, with real estate, it, it's, for me, it was about controlling my time. That was kind of what I realized. And as I get older, realize is the only thing that matters. Um, you can always make more money. You can always buy more stuff. Um, but the time piece doesn't matter how much money you have. You're not getting it back. So, you know, for me, it was jump in sooner. Um, I didn't know everything, but it's really hard to learn if you're sitting on the sidelines I'm not saying I'm not advocating for you to do dumb stuff. You got to educate yourself, but surround yourself by with people who um, can mentor you and, and help. Um, and that's what we did um, in kind of my path. I've had good partners along the way, but you got to jump in to learn. So I would say that, and then, you know, that's specific for real estate on the life piece. And this is something I still struggle with, but the fear part, um, you know, there's so many quotes about fear, but it's one of those things that <laughs> the, the, the person that's scariest to is you. Usually it doesn't turn out the way that you think. <laughs> so, you know, when you're laying in bed thinking, oh my God, what have I done? Um, it, it usually turns out okay. Uh, so the fear piece is one that I continue, you know, day to day. Like sometimes we're doing stuff here that I'm like, I don't know why we're doing this. This is going to turn out bad. I'm going to be living in a van under a bridge. <laughs> um, so far so good. We, we haven't ended up there yet. So, um, I, th I think those are two things that you can apply to almost anything. Now, that's terrific, Chris. And that's, you know, again, that's one of the reasons we wanted to have you on. Um, it's been super interesting learning a lot more about the self-storage industry. I know our audience is going to have some questions. Uh, what is the best way for them to learn more about Reliant and, uh, what you guys do? Yeah, for sure. So um, if you're interested in kind of the operating company, we have uh, a, a couple websites to check out. So uh, Reliant, uh, www.reliant-mgmt.com really talks about the storage platform. If you're interested on the passive investing side of things, um, Reliant Investments, uh, plural. So relyantinvestments.com um, that has a, a lot of information about our investment platform, track record, um, there's also some educational components on there, Chris, um, for new investors who are looking to kind of understand what they should know as they get involved. Uh, we've done a, a bunch of video series kind of, uh, it, it's all free just to <laughs> limit the number of questions that we get as investors talk to us. Um, so all that's on relyinginvestments.com. And then I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. You can certainly connect with me. Um, Chris Benson is Chris with a K. Um, but if you Google me and Reliant, you'll find us. Terrific. No, thank you so much, Chris. We really appreciate you being on the show. Um, you've done a terrific job in terms of putting out that educational material. We're going to have all of what you just mentioned in the show notes. So if you're listening, like Chris said in the car, um, go ahead, take a look at the show notes. You can find more information on Chris Benson, Reliant, and learn more about the self-storage. Thank you so much for being on with us today, Chris. My pleasure, guys. Have a good rest of the day. You too. Thanks. You too, buddy.